It's, it's really fun to touch nerves, spiritual nerves, <laughs> to touch them, not to like twist them or anything. But what we started talking about last night, last week, is an emotional, emotional topic. I got a couple of lengthy opinions, articles, and assessments of my teaching after last week's message, primarily centered on these two words, I disagree which is fine. I read them all. I read thousands of words of the differing opinions. You know why? Because they're pretty good. I mean, they're good points. And, and here's the great part about it. No one knows. No one knows. So I can feel very confident in saying, you know, great. And, and, but the thing is, no matter how strong someone's opinion is, no one knows. The consensus of scholarship is that New Testament accounts represent a crucifixion occurring on a Friday. But a Thursday or Wednesday crucifixion has also been proposed based on two Shabbats in that week. A Friday Shabbat for the first day of, of Hag Hamatzot, or Saturday for the weekly Sabbath. Some people say it happened on Thursday. Some people say it happened on Wednesday. Why did they do that? Because of one verse in Matthew where Yeshua said, like Jonah was three days and three nights. They based the entire rest of the story on that one verse. So Wednesday it had to be. Well, that actually ends up being four days, but that's a whole nother message. Some have, you know, there's, there's all kinds of argument. But here's the telling statement from Joseph Fitzmaier. Catholic priest. Well, you can't listen to him. I can. He's a New Testament scholar. Absolutely well-respected. Written thousands of pages of commentary on the Jewish foundations the Greek, the early church, a very well-respected guy. You know what he says? No attempt should be made to harmonize the synoptics and the Johannine traditions. No attempt should be made to try to reconcile Matthew, Mark, and Luke with John. It's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? In other words, what he's saying, no one can really know. But that's no fun. But before we jump into part two of what I started last week, I want to share something else. And it is going to rub some people's feathers the wrong way, which I guess hurts. I mean, if you get your feathers rubbed the wrong way, we wouldn't know we don't have them. But I want to say that anyone who attempts to dismiss the discrepancies that we're talking about, anyone who attempts to discredit someone who suggests that there are discrepancies in the text, not just the Gospels, in the Torah, in the Tanakh, we find apparent discrepancies. Anyone who tries to discredit those discredits themselves. That's the truth of that statement. And your theological support and your interpretation of the Greek, which often happens to be only your interpretation of the Greek because you're something, I don't know what. And then after you've provided all of these things to then say, there's your answer. There's no discrepancy here. And you say, but sit down, shut up, don't ask me any questions. That's the answer you need. That is not a useful apologetic. That is not a defense of the scriptures in any way. And I value, I value education. I really do. 
PhDs, MDiv, seminary, yeshiva degrees, medical degrees, law degrees, whatever I value. I value people who put that kind of blood, sweat, and tears into the training to critically think through things, especially when it comes to theology, the Bible, understanding original languages, grammar, syntax, all of that. I respect it very deeply. I do not have a PhD. But I read and learn, and I'm kind of, I'm relatively smart. I passed high school and college, and, you know, I did pretty well. But I read from a lot of other smart people, real smart people, and I listen to them, scholars, very, very, very intelligent people. And, and sometimes these brilliant minds, you know the place they arrive at the end of the story, and not just this, but others? I don't know. The Talmud has one of my favorite idioms when it says, teach your tongue to say, I don't know. If more people knew that, man, it'd be a better world. Who are, who are comfortable to say, you know what? I don't know, but here's an opinion. Or to settle this with certainty is impossible, but, but consider this. And why is that important? Why is it important that someone would have the confidence in the Bible to say that? Well, first of all, no one's, I'm not really trying to convince you of anything. And no one really is trying to convince existing disciples of Yeshua of why they should believe in Yeshua. What we're talking to and about is the critics. We're talking to the skeptics. We're talking to the Jewish anti-missionaries who read the Gospels and say, your, your book is a lie, Stephen. <laughs> These things, they, they contradict each other. How can you say any of things? Or to the person who once was sitting in the church pews and had questions and was told, don't ask questions. There's a conflict. To say to someone, there's no problems here. It's like me saying, hey, what do you guys think about my new blonde hair? You like it? Well, your, your hair's not blonde. Yes, it is. But, but I'm looking at, shut up. Don't ask questions. What you see is never what is. They call me Mr. Golden Hair. <laughs> it's a silly thing to deny the obvious, right? And so this long thing about this is only to say, I'm not suggesting that I'm right. I don't know if I'm right, and we won't know. And by the way, when we get to the Messianic age and we're having this conversation with Yeshua and we say, so let's talk about that crucifixion thing, I imagine him saying, not that again, that doesn't matter, we're here now. But it was on Friday. <laughs> no, just kidding. I need to stay on track because last week I, I got, no one liked the fact that I left that cliffhanger. I did it for your own benefit so that you wouldn't be here all day. So now you will be here all day because I have to finish this part too. But I'm going to present to you a case, an opinion, one of many opinions, but it's a really good opinion and it's a messianic opinion, which is appropriate, somewhat unique considering our place here. And, you know, you're going to leave here with some new thoughts in your head. 
You're going to leave here thinking about some things and you're going to expand your knowledge of the history and context of the Bible. And that is worth doing. But my real hope is that maybe you'll be first Peterized. First Peter 315, which says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you. To give a reason for what you believe. Someone sent me a text message this week and said, you know what? Just this week, somebody asked me these questions and I, I, I wasn't really prepared to answer them. So thanks for digging in. So that's the thing we're doing here. And you just might make them think when it's all said and done. That'll be great, right? I can't review last week very much because we'll be here literally all day. But basically, by nearly all educated suggestions, and you can put this slide up, by nearly all educated suggestions, we have a dilemma. The synoptics present, or seem to present, Yeshua and the disciples celebrating a Passover Seder at the traditional time on the 14th of Nisan with everyone in Jerusalem. That was on a Thursday night. A crucifixion on the first day of the festival, which took place on Friday the 15th, after the satyrs had happened the night before, that Yeshua died on a Shabbat, on the high Sabbath, which was this 15th of Friday, the Friday the 15th, just prior to the weekly Sabbath. So Friday, crucifixion and burial, it's already happening on Passover. That moves into Shabbat. There's two Shabbats that week. That's what we talked about with the Gospels in a nutshell. John tells a different story. In John's story, all this happened before the Passover. Yeshua had a meal, but he doesn't mention it as a Passover Seder or eating the Pesach or anything. John's chronology has Yeshua crucified on the 14th of Nisan, that is Friday before Passover, meaning that at that night when the sun went down and Joseph and Nicodemus put him in the grave, it moved into the holiday of Passover. The 15th of Nisan began the Friday evening into Shabbat, and it coincided with the weekly Sabbath. And everyone joyously enjoyed their their Passover seders that Friday the 14th, except, of course, Yeshua and the disciples, who were probably totally, totally devastated. Now, those are pretty big differences, and we highlighted some differences and difficulties with the synoptic chronology. There are apparent contradictions, so much so that most scholars dismiss the synoptics except the Johannine chronology. And I remind you of Fitzmaier's comment, no attempt should be made to try to reconcile these two things. But let's do it anyway. Who's right? That's the question. Well, according to historical precedent, sign of the times, the diversity of Jewish practice, and the opinion of one Messianic scholar, Rabbi Yechiel Lichtenstein from the 19th century. You ready? Who's right? You ready? They both are. And you knew that was coming, right? It had to. But how? How can it be? After spending all this time, there is a possibility of reconciling these conflicting accounts without destroying uh, either one of them. So we're going to take this look. But in order to do it, we need to look, first of all, at the festival calendar. We need to look at the Omer count. And we need to look at our first century friends, 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay, so history lesson in a nutshell. Here we go. The Jewish calendar in the days of the master was not fixed. It was not like pulling out your iPhone and looking at what June 16th is going to look like in 2028. It was not fixed. The Sanhedrin, the ruling body, relied on eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts of the sighting of the moon. Remember, the calendar is lunar in Judaism, right? Starts with the sighting of the little crescent, the little sign of the moon. And when those verified witnesses, verified witnesses, came to the Sanhedrin to report the sighting of the crescent of the new moon, then the Sanhedrin declared that the new month had started. And sometimes, though, that created variability in the calendar. Now, the festivals are obviously determined by the months and the days. But... Well, and that's not really any different. And the Sanhedrin then was in charge of, had a very significant influence on when the festivals were celebrated. Just like the United States government, if we declare a national holiday, that's when the holiday is celebrated. Imagine that's what the Sanhedrin was doing. But sometimes that resulted in technical errors. If inclement weather, cloudy skies, some other unforeseen circumstance other irregularities prevented the accurate sighting and reporting of the moon. If it was missed, it didn't matter. The Sanhedrin's setting the date for the new month stuck. That's what the people followed. Okay? So there was variability. There's an interesting... Uh, there's an interesting Gentile reference to this from Epiphanius, who's talking to Gentiles about when to celebrate the Passover. He says, you shall not calculate the calendar yourself, but celebrate the feast whenever your brethren from the circumcision do. Keep it together with them. Even if they err, do not be concerned. This is a historical text verifying that that calendar had some fluidity. And that the festival dates could change based, they're always going to be on the 15th of Nisan. But it depends when you declare the first of Nisan for you get to the 15th. I'll make some more sense of that if you just stick with me here. But the point is, the legislative body of the Sanhedrin has power and influence to set the start of months and the days of the festival. And normally people follow that calendar. But there is another major difficulty, historical difficulty. That is the Omer and the counting of the Omer. And I will teach more specifically on what the Omer is, why it's important, because we're in that season right now. I'll do that next week. Our purpose here today, and knowing not everyone is, not everyone is familiar with this, the counting of the Omer is the period between Passover and Shavuot where we count up from the 16th of Nisan, the day after Passover, up until Shavuot. 49 days of a count, 50 days is Shavuot. This is a Leviticus commandment. This is a Torah commandment. It says in the biblical commandment, 
Say to the people of Israel, when you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord that you may find acceptance on the morrow after the Sabbath. That's when you should do that. Okay? Really important to pay attention to that line. On the, on the day after the Sabbath. Okay? There was an agricultural component to this, the first fruits of the barley harvest, working up to the wheat harvest at Shavuot. It's a spiritual time as well. But it was mired with controversy in the days of the master. And here is why. The Pharisees looked at this text and said, on the morrow after the Sabbath means the festival Shabbat of Passover. The 15th of Nisan, the day after we start the Omer count. Okay? The Sadducees said, on the morrow of the Sabbath means after the weekly Sabbath that happens during the days of Passover. So that would mean by the Sadducean reckoning that it always happened on a Sunday. For the Pharisees, it could happen at any day because Passover could fall on any day of the week. The morrow after the Sabbath of the Passover, we start the count of the Omer. If you're a Pharisee, next slide. If you're a Sadducee, it does not work that way. It is right after the weekly Sabbath. I hope that makes sense because it's very, very important. Does that make sense? There's a, discrep a discussion, a disagreement about what on the morrow of the Sabbath means. <clears throat> but the Pharisees, contrary to what you've been told while sitting in the church pews, the Pharisees were the people's people. They were a party of the people. The people respected their opinions. And what the Pharisees said normally went and so the Pharisees declared, we're doing it after the, the 15th. The 16th of Nisan, no matter what day it is, that's when we start the Omer count. Okay? And not on the weekly, uh, not after the weekly, as the Sadducees said. But, but... Indications are strong, historically, that the Sadducees, Caiaphas as an example, were, in the year of Yeshua's death, controlling the Sanhedrin. Who was controlling the Sanhedrin? The Sadducees. What was the Sadducees' opinion regarding the Omer count? It takes place after the weekly Sabbath. That's all I need you to know right now. Who determined the start of the month, did we say? The Sanhedrin. The Sadducees are influencing the Sanhedrin. This is going to create a unique situation. And here we get into Tzvi Lichtenstein's explanation. It proposes this harmonization between the Synoptic version and the Johannian version. And as I said in the beginning, it is an opinion. It is speculative, as they all are but based on Jewish sources to present how this could have happened and actually did happen in history, that there were two days of Passover back to back, the year the master died. It's quite simple. The Sadducees used their influence. 
You can't just randomly change the calendar. You can't do that. But you can do something. See, the moon is the moon. There, there are sometimes errors and variability sometimes. But if your party, if your Sadducean party wanted to shift the day of a festival by one day, guess what you could do? You could hire false witnesses. You could hire false witnesses who would say that they saw the moon on a different day. You could manipulate the witnesses to have them report something different than what they actually saw to our situation. Rabbi Lichtenstein suggests, based on Talmudic precedent, precedent this, is, this is exactly what happened with Caiaphas and his Sadducees and their cronies that year. What they did is this. They sanctified the moon, but they started the month of Nisan one day late. And in so doing, they were able to affect the counting of the Omer to align with their position and to align with the position of the Pharisees that year that the Omer count should begin the day after the Passover Sabbath. So, if you can show me that graph uh, of the two Sabbath thing, that should work. All that happened is they moved things forward. Okay, and, and just you can keep that up there for a second. The moon was seen on the right day, but they paid witnesses to, to deny that to move the month of Nisan one day forward. By shifting the celebration of Passover one day later, Lichtenstein says that in the year our master died, Erev Pesach, Nisan 14, was actually on a Thursday. It actually was as the Gospels report. It was as the Gospels report. That means that by the actual calendar, the Seder should have been held Thursday night. Friday actually would have been the 15th of Nisan. It would have been a festival Shabbat, which would have then moved into the weekly Shabbat. Friday for Passover, Saturday was the regular weekly Shabbat. And what that means is that the Omer count, the celebration, would have actually begun by this reckoning on the 15th, which was a Saturday. The gospel tradition says Thursday night, Seder, Friday, Passover, Sabbath. Saturday was a Sabbath. There were two Sabbaths in this year. And I know it's confusing, but I think I can make it work if you just see me through to the end. <clears throat> Lichtenstein and others postulate that the Sadducees hired false witnesses to forestall the month by one day. They used bribes to influence the Sanhedrin to delay declaring the new moon by one day, therefore forcing everything to shift forward. It should have been as the Gospels 
they reported it. But because there was corruption and bribing and Sadducees and Sanhedrin tinkering, everything moved forward an actual day. Why did they do that? Well, because then they could be right. They could have their cake and eat it too. They were able to count the Omer and celebrate Shavuot the way that they would want to because they had forced everything forward. The weekly Sabbath and the Yom Tov now coincided. Therefore, Pharisaic and Sadducean opinion lined up. In this way, they forced the whole population to celebrate the way they wanted to do it. Now that seems incredibly far-fetched and speculative, and how can you possibly say that? Well, there are some points of evidence. First of all, we know that this controversy was very, very real. We know that the Sadducees, the house of Bothus, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, had this debate about the Omer controversy. We also know that the Pharisees and Sadducees were themselves criticized by Yeshua at times for doing what? Putting traditions above the weighty matters. In other words, this is not at all beyond the pale, that they would shift things around to make their opinions look right. We also know that the Sadducees were corrupt. Rome was their, was their daddy, power-hungry. And we know that the calendar also was somewhat fluid and open to potential error. But we also know that this actually happened, that there was a precedent for this that is reported in the Talmud. There is evidence in the Talmudic story about the Sadducees hiring false witnesses to mislead the sages with false reports about the sighting of the new moon. In this story, they hired false witnesses for 200 zuzim to report that they had seen the new moon and to declare the new month in order to shift the date of Passover to force it to coincide with their interpretation. In other words, the Talmud reports that this exact thing had previously happened. It is reported. So some were thinking one day was correct. Others were thinking the following day was correct. And they were thinking, oh, well, the court will settle this, but they really didn't. And they ended up going with the dates that the Sanhedrin suggested. So, according to Lichtenstein, the Sadducees artificially manipulated the calendar through the power of the Sanhedrin, delaying the month of Nisan, delaying the celebration of Passover. And they had the right to do that because they were the Sanhedrin. However, and this is, the big, this is the big one, there were Pharisees who knew that this was a deception. There were Pharisees who knew that that had taken place, that the month had been mistakenly reported for theological and manipulative reasons. And in that case, these Pharisees said, guess what? We're not doing it. We're celebrating Passover on the actual day that it is supposed to be happened. We're not letting these Sadducees and Sanhedrin mess with us. We're doing it on the right day. So here's the major takeaway. John's sequence, you will notice, coincides with what I just told you about the Sadducees. 
John reports the Sadducean observance of Passover. The Gospels report the Pharisaic observation of Passover that year, meaning that it happened as they report it in Pharisaic circles. By the Gospel reckoning, then, this was a Seder that Yeshua had. It was a Seder on the 14th of Nisan by the actual calendar. Now, this, this minority of Israel, as I said, most people went along with the Sanhedrin and just did whatever they said, but this minority of Israel was adamant about making sure that Seders were held in accordance with the actual day, regardless of the majority opinion. There is a further note from Lichtenstein's commentary that's important that makes the point that this is not Yeshua's normal way of being. Yeshua was not a renegade. He was not a rebel. He was not always trying to disrupt and turn over the apple cart with everything. He followed much of tradition. But this particular year, knowing that he was going to die on the cross on this day... He took advantage of the controversy that was taking place so that he could, as he said, I have desired earnestly to celebrate this Passover with you. And by this quirk, this twist, this controversy that was going on, he was able to do that. Now, as I said, speculation they all are. But this makes good sense. Why does it make good sense? Because there's a historical precedent. There is culture and context. It's in Jewish writing. It's logical. It's harmonious. And, and it's possible. There are some great speculations out there. There really are. But there are problems if you try to get around some of the difficulties, especially as it relates to the fact that Yeshua died on Friday. You can't just randomly switch it and say, no, it was Wednesday, it was Thursday. The Gospels report that Yeshua died on a Friday. And we see also in the Gospel text... It says things like, when the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea is taking Yeshua down. Luke, it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. It was, according to the Gospels, on Friday. But the only way these stories can parallel is if something like this took place, where there were two distinct celebrations of Passover that year. And all those Sadducees and all the people who were in Pilate's court in what we would perceive to be on the Passover, as we talked about, all those people, they hadn't had Passover yet because they were celebrating according to the majority opinion of the Sanhedrin. Our guys had. They were celebrating according to the Pharisaic reckoning. And there's a really interesting last consideration. Well, well, two. Two quick ones. How could it be that if, this, if, if they did something early, how could they have actually called that a Passover Seder? 
It had to be on the 14th of Nisan. How would they get a lamb sacrificed if that wasn't happening in Israel? Well, first of all, it was the 14th of Nisan by the Pharisaic calendar. But secondly, they had possibly speculative. They had supporters, Pharisees, that were also having to figure out how are we going to slaughter a lamb on the Passover? And some of them could have been priests who served in the temple, who could have sacrificed a Pesach lamb in the temple, or they could have just had a Thanksgiving offering, which is very similar to the Passover lamb. So there is a way it could be done. But speaking of, of um, sympathetic Pharisees, this is the really interesting point I want to make. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you and follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the householder, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Where am I to eat the Passover with my disciples? This is on the Pharisaic Passover. Okay, This is before anything had happened. This is the Pharisaic Passover. Is that a randomly weird detail that the Gospels put into the story? Only the Gospels. John doesn't say anything about a man with a water jar. That's a random detail, isn't it? Have you ever wondered why that's in there? Here's Lichtenstein's speculation. Yeshua knew what was up. He knew this was unorthodox, pun intended. He knew that special arrangements would need to be made. If he were going to celebrate the Passover that he longed to have, he needed to find a place where that was actually happening. And where would that have been happening? Only in a Pharisaic home, a sympathizer's home. Someone who discredited and ignored the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin said, nope, guess what? We're doing a Seder on the right night in my house. They also would have needed to be sympathetic to Yeshua's cause. They would have need, needed someone who was a Pharisee celebrating on the 14th of Nisan and would also open their home to Yeshua and his disciples to have a Seder. Now, that's a very, probably very small portion of people in Jerusalem. Was Yeshua a prophet? Could Yeshua see forward? Did Yeshua know? We believe he did. And so Yeshua tells his disciples specifically, this is the guy you need to find. Why? He understands. He's sympathetic. He will take you to a Pharisee's home. And this Pharisee, who understands us and understands our dilemma, will open up this upper room and there we will celebrate the last Passover. Is that awesomely cool? I love it. Speculation? Yes, I've already said that. But it makes sense. It's a random detail in the story. That, I mean, I don't even understand. I've always wondered why that would be pointed out. And this brings illumination.
And all of these things, all of these things, are a possible reason why we have different accounts, suggesting different days and different kinds of meals and finding strange men with water jugs and so many other things that do not seem on their face to be able to be reconciled. This can reconcile it with some added historical Jewish contextual detail that's phenomenally amazing. So is that chart up there? The last chart. It's small, I know. But you can see it now. You can see how it comes together. John's gospel, and this is in conclusion. You ready to conclude? John's gospel reports the traditional observance of Shabbat that took place in the year our master died. According to the majority opinion in Israel, according to the Sanhedrin, Friday, Friday was the, the, the Passover sacrifices were offered on Friday, according to John. And then it moved that night into one Shabbat which was the weekly Shabbat and the Yom Tov Shabbat. That's how they wanted it. They manipulated the calendar to get it. The Pharisees below, no, not that. We know when the moon was. Thursday night, we have our seders. There's two Shabbats that week. And that's what they report in the Gospels. And we see the events as they took place in the Gospels. And that's my concluding point. All of this is intense. It's brilliant. I mean, different reckonings of the calendar, depending on your party, the calendar itself, the Omer, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, oh my, it's all brilliant. But, but listen, cultures, conflicts, crucifixions, the thing that matters most is indisputable. There was a resurrection. There was a resurrection that took place. Now, this year, I want you to know this. If it had happened according to the Pharisaic reckoning, then that barley harvest would not have coincided in the same way with the resurrection of the first fruits of the dead, which was Yeshua. This conflict and all this mishigas and all this trouble and everything that got arranged perfectly aligned with the death, burial, and resurrection, the first fruits of our Messiah, Yeshua. It is quite possible, quite possible, that God is big enough to know and understand that all of this was going to happen. And as they're waving the barley, and who cares how we got there? What they're actually in line with is the resurrection of the Messiah from the grave. And that world-changing resurrection is the part of the story that matters most. And these details we've dug into are important. This is one way. It's a good logical way to interpret the challenges that we see in the text. But regarding the climax of the story... That is the resurrection of the first fruits from the dead. As the Talmud says, 
There is no difficulty. Amen. Let's stand together.